The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. Today on episode 14, we have Pastor Kerry Gordon, Senior Pastor of Cornerstone World Outreach of Sioux City, Iowa. Pastor Kerry is the father of six kids, and he is also an author of the book, A Storm, A Message, A Bottle, A Roadmap to American Redemption. Pastor Kerry, welcome to Master's Crib. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So let's just take a couple minutes and dig into your background. So when did you start in pastoring? Well, I'm I'm a third generation minister, so if I was to be really honest, I was born into the ministry, literally. (laughs) I, I, I came to the Lord at the ripe old age of three during an altar call when my father was um, presenting the gospel strongly and talking about hell, and I was deeply stirred and moved, and I wanted my sins forgiven. I have no idea what sins I had committed, but I, I felt guilt. <laughs> I, I needed my the weight alleviated from me, and I walked forward, and I can still remember it, the, everyone weeping in the, in the church, and I was thinking to myself, why is everyone crying? It made no sense to me, but I, you know, my, my grandfather was a minister for 65 years, and uh, we're, we, we joke that we're like the Levites. Uh, I've got um, two brother-in-laws that are active pastors, one in Italy and one in Arkansas. And I have a cousin who's a pastor. I have had two uncles who pastored, one who just passed away recently, and mm, another who is retired now. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. And uh, so uh, we're, we're kind of pastoral in about every direction in my family, and we consider it a uh, a great honor to serve the Lord as a family, and and um, I I suspect that God will probably continue that, and that my sons will have a stirring at some point to find their way in ministry, however God directs them. Wow, that is awesome! So, with all that's going on out there in Sioux City, what is the mission? Like the end of the day, you go to sleep. What are you praying was accomplished by all the things you're doing out there? Well, I mean, the church exists for the reason that Jesus said that it exists. And, um, you know, we're to be salt and light. We're to present the full gospel of the kingdom. Mm. And it's not this little shrunken down gospel that we've turned it into in Western Christianity. It's not neo-Gnosticism. What we're supposed to be giving is the gospel of the kingdom. That's Mm. what it was referred to in the scriptures uh, and, and it's enormous. The gospel is huge. Hmm. And when the Bible says we have a great commission, that's exactly what it means. It is really great. It is enormous. Yeah. And so the gospel of the kingdom confronts wicked men with, of their sins, and it uses the law, uses the fundamentals of the Ten Commandments to, to help man realize that he needs a Savior. And But it also goes beyond that. The, the gospel of the kingdom not only convicts individual souls, of their sins and brings them to Jesus, the saving power of the cross. It also is a guidepost for whole nations. And so the gospel of the kingdom is not just to save individual souls. And we shouldn't be reductionists. Mm. We shouldn't reduce this enormous Bible that we have that 
literally speaks to every conceivable issue a man will ever encounter in his life and just reduce it down to whether he's going to heaven or not. That is, of course, very important, but it's larger than that. And the gospel of the kingdom impacts whole nations. So Jesus wants to save your soul, absolutely. But Jesus also wants to save your whole nation. Mm. And uh, there are ways that we should govern ourselves that are approved by God. And there are ways that we should not govern ourselves because they are not approved by God. It's just that simple. And Romans chapter 13 has been really popular during the COVID epidemic, hasn't it? Well, one of the things that we can extrapolate from Romans 13 is that there is only one person who gets to define the words good and evil. And when it speaks of government, which I believe it's definitely addressing civil government in Romans 13, but frankly, I think it's addressing ecclesiastical government and every other kind of government too. I think it says that he beareth not the sword in vain and that government in all of its facets, family government, uh, church governments, uh, educational government, um, and civil government, all of these governments the concept is from God, and they are to reward good and punish evil. And if that's true, then only God gets to define good and evil. And as I explained to our police chief uh, early on during the pandemic, in a private message back and forth, explaining to him, Christians will be a natural ally of the police department, and we will always be on your side as long as you get one fundamental thing correct. And that is the definition of good and evil. Mm -hmm. At the very moment you begin to define evil as good or good as evil, I will become your most natural enemy Mm -hmm. because I represent a law that is higher than the state of Iowa and a kingdom that is greater than any nation on this earth. And they, and they alone, God Almighty, defines the words good and evil. And so long as you keep those two words straight, you and I are going to be friends. And mm. that, was my, that was my loving pastoral warning that he should not accept unlawful orders from our governess mm. and come and arrest me on Sunday morning as I preached to my congregation <laughs> against her unlawful orders. Mm. And it worked. He didn't arrest me. I, I kind of wanted him to because I think I would have made a point. But uh, the Lord saw fit to let me get through that without having to wear an orange suit. Wow. So looking back over your years of ministry and, um, you know, knowing exactly what you're hoping is, is the end result every day, where is uh, one area that you can think of uh, where that didn't happen and it's something you could have fixed? Looking back, you wish you would have done things just a little bit differently. Well, I wish that early on when I first began in ministry, I had understood the full scope of the gospel like I just described it. Mm. Um, my goal is to preach the full gospel of the kingdom, all the contents of the Bible, to show people as much as I can possibly show them, uh, so long as their attention span will allow it and their maturity can receive it. Mm. You know, there's always that issue. You remember the Holy Spirit discussion, and Jesus said, there are many more things I would say to you, but you cannot yet bear it. So in every church, the pastor knows more than his people, uh, hopefully, and but he has to make a, de- a determination with the help of the Holy Spirit. What can my people handle this mm. Sunday? And you always take them to the edge to stretch them, and you always give them a little bit, uh, just a little push, so that they aren't too comfortable and they stay shallow. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. But 
we, we want to expand people's understanding of the kingdom by preaching, and preaching the gospel requires confrontation. You have to be willing to confront people and to deal with issues. Mm. So my goal, of course, I think it, in a general sense, it should be the goal of every pastor, and that's to preach the full counsel of the Scripture, Old and New Testament, and to, to pass along as much knowledge as is humanly possible before my last breath. So that the the gospel continues, I think we have to be generational thinkers. Mm. I, I'm I sort of inherited uh, a tremendous blessing in being a third generation preacher. I get generational thinking. When I built our newest church, we were thinking a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now. We weren't thinking about the next twenty years. Mm. And I think that's how you have to preach. And when you see with a large view what's happening in the United States. Things are getting worse. Uh, religious liberty is not being properly respected. Our children are going to have to face a much more hostile culture than even we are. And so the best thing that we can do is to confront that now and see if we can turn the tide back. Mm. Wow. Wow, that is awesome. So how about you and I spend a little bit of time tearing into God's Word tonight? We're going to look at uh, Matthew sixteen thirteen through 20. And uh, I'd just like to like to read that. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, What do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So just from this passage, Pastor Kerry, could you just talk to everyone about the authority of Christ? Well, absolutely. That is a fascinating passage, and there's a lot of confusion that surrounds it because of the Shakespearean English and some misunderstandings that come from, they're just natural. I mean, we speak Mm. English, most of us don't speak Greek, and so we can read through that and miss what's actually being said. And the first thing that I would point out that, that seems to happen a lot is people misread this text and they think that, that we are sort of directing heaven. And that's really not what the original language was saying. Uh, it's saying that heaven has already made up its mind on mm. many issues and whatever has already been bound, if you look at the actual grammar of the Greek, whatever has already been bound in heaven, we are to carry that out on the earth as ambassadors of that kingdom. Mm. And the authority is extraordinary, of course, because the kingdom of heaven has always been and will always be. There is nothing you can do. Um, What you going to do when they come for you? You could ask that (laughs) question. Because God's kingdom and his laws are eternal. They're immutable. They're inflexible. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. So as ambassadors of the kingdom, when, when he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, that's symbolic of extraordinary authority. And it's the authority to properly represent decisions that have already been established by the law of God. Mm. And um, 
If you go a couple of chapters later, you will see that same phraseology used again, where two or three of you are gathered in my midst, there am I in the midst of you. And it talks about, again, binding and loosing. This is a reference to um, dealing with uh, basically church discipline mm. and that people do things that are unacceptable to God. And they will do things that are unacceptable, of course, in our civic arena. They will do things that are unacceptable in your family at home. Mm. Mom and dad have to discipline children. People will do things that are unacceptable in the church assembly or the ecclesia, which is the gathering of the saints, the called out ones who, who assemble. And if you look at the word church more as a verb, when you're churching, you have to be assembled. But I'll mm. try to avoid that rabbit trail right now <laughs> after COVID-19. But um, the authority is pre-existing us. There are laws we make in our civic arena, and there are laws that we did not make. We could only discover them. Like, for example, men didn't make the law of mathematics. Men didn't create the law of gravity or the laws that govern biology and physiology. Those laws are above our pay grade. We discovered them, and uh, the atheist says those laws appeared after an explosion. But we know that those are the that God Almighty is the first cause of those pre-existing laws, and beyond the, the the clear and obvious laws of nature and nature's God, we have ecclesiastical law. So the the Ten Commandments clarify that there are laws we cannot avoid; we will be judged if we cross them. Mm. And if we believe what the Bible bluntly tells us. Uh, in this passage about the keys to the kingdom, that we're here as ambassadors of God's kingdom. And we add to that that we believe that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Then we have to be consistent and say then that God's authority is not only in my personal salvation mm. with loan, but it extends further to my entire family, how I raise my children. It extends further to the ecclesiology of my local church how we conduct ourselves in worship on Sunday. Mm. It extends further in how we govern ourselves as nations. Uh, if earth is his footstool and we are beneath him and he is above us and he's the head, then it speaks to where does the church play a role in all of these other governments that God has ordained. And the fact remains that we must understand that the church cannot be subservient to a civic government. It cannot be subservient even to family government. It cannot be subservient to any government on this earth because we represent the highest government that, that exists. So that means that the civic arena in a proper understanding of government must bow its knee. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And that's the issue, because many refuse right now. <laughs> we live in a world where we're warned, you know, you're going to finally figure this out someday, that you were never above God, and you were never above his representatives, uh, his church, his ambassadors. One way that I describe the church is it's, if you think of it as a, an embassy, and the pastor and the people as ambassadors of a great high kingdom that doesn't necessarily originate here, but originates somewhere else. And that brings me to the, the phrase that, that you just read, the kingdom of heaven. And it literally means kingdom from heaven. Mm. So there is a kingdom that preexists us, laws that preexist us, a king 
who is king of all kings and lord of all lords, and he has sent a warning through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, that all of the world should know that he is going to return and he will rule with a rod of iron, and it would be better for us to bow willingly Mm. and to confess willingly than to find out after resisting him like he gave in the parable, we will not have this king to rule over us. And so here we are, the church and families, uh, we're trapped in a world where we know every knee must bow, every tongue will confess, but everyone else is refusing. Now, how do we do this? Well, our, it's not by the sword, it's not by threats, it's not by violence. Uh, that's the way Rome did it. But Jesus said, that's not how my kingdom will expand, but it begins in the heart. So our goal is not just to transform individual human beings that they would get saved and go to heaven, even though that's definitely where we begin. Mm-hmm. Our ultimate goal is that they, since we, when we get born again or have that wonderful experience of repentance, we don't vanish and immediately go to heaven. We, we're still here. So then for the rest of our lives, there's a way that we ought to be living, and that includes how we conduct our business. If we get elected, there's a certain kind of a law that we ought to uh, align with and certain kinds of laws we should never support. Mm. And so the church has to remind every person, every knee, and every tongue that there is a kingdom that's higher than theirs, and they are to obey now, mm. not someday, not pie in the sky. They're to obey him now. There's, and I'm not a Two Kingdoms fan. I'm not a Lutheran. I have wonderful Lutheran friends, but I think that uh, Martin Luther made a mistake with his Two Kingdoms teaching. Mm. And um, some apologists say that we've just, uh, in the Lutheran church today, that the Lutherans have taken his Two Kingdoms theology and they've, they've taken it further than he intended. And that might be true, but I'm a one kingdom guy. There's one law, there's one God, there's one kingdom, and the world just needs to figure out who's the boss. Mm. And um, we're here to remind men of that. And I, I don't think that we're hindering anyone from getting saved when we go out into the public sector and say abortion must stop because mm. God's law says thou shalt do no murder. I actually think we're helping people get saved when we present the law. Amen. Amen. So you're talking a lot about um, what the church does. And obviously we see this authority extended through the church what our responsibilities actually are, that it's more than just having someone pray the prayer, that this needs to extend into every single area of life. So we see Christ's authority there. Now, when we hear this build the church, typically Mm -hmm. what most people think of is kind of what we were discussing a little earlier about building a church. Like they think about going out and getting authority from the government so that they can have a permit, so they can build a building. But I I understand this is something kind of simple, but it's important also. Would you just talk for just a moment, Pastor Kerry, about what is being spoken of here in building the church? Because obviously it's not the same thing that comes into our minds. That's exactly right. What Jesus is saying is he is going to build his church. And that means that human efforts alone or the arm of the flesh will fail you, like the old hymn says. Mm. We can't just go out and do great marketing and do proper advertising and really punchy commercials and great tunes and give a free breakfast for everyone who shows up. I mean, those those are all marketing techniques that are used by hotels. They're used by McDonald's. They're used by movie theaters. And do they work? Of course they work. But is that how Jesus builds his church? No. Mm. The way that Jesus builds his church is much different 
and he said he would build his church. Now, this does not necessarily mean that we're all off the hook and we just sit back and have no, <laughs> uh, no impetus to share our faith and, and no evangelism. We don't do anything. That's not what he's saying either. So we have to strike a balance and understand the difference between Jesus building the church and men. And the way that I view ministry, I'll say it this way. I don't see my job or my duty as the senior pastor of our church. I'm not there to build it. Mm. I am there to maintain it and to make sure that our worship is conducted in a way that Jesus prefers it. That means I can't just get up and preach on 1 Corinthians 13 on the love chapter all the time and never obey 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which was written by the same man that says certain people can't serve as even an usher mm. because they're not living right. They, uh, an, uh, a man who's a deacon can't even have a wife who gossips. Mm. Now, someone has to enforce those things. So my role, when Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build my church, and how does he do it? On the revelation of the Messiah, on the revelation of who Christ is, he's going to build his church on that revelation. So my job is to make sure that I am delivering that revelation of who Christ is, and then Jesus is saying he is going to build the church. Mm. And um, that's how I see it. I, I look at my duty as a pastor not to find out the latest marketing gimmick, <laughs> but to be sure that I'm preaching the truth unapolog unapologetically, and I'm giving people the full counsel of the scriptures that I'm willing to confront a deacon whose wife gossips, because it specifically says in 1 Corinthians 5 that that kind of a person's disqualified from any leadership in the church, mm -hmm. right? So my job is to make sure that we keep things in order the way God wants it, and so that his presence will come and be among us when we worship. And um, I let Jesus do the building, and I just do the preaching. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So taking that up into, into some cultural implications, I mean, looking at this, you've already, you've already spoken to this, uh, to this in some detail, and I really appreciate that. I mean, the church is supposed to be this, you know, swinging fist into this culture. So we have passages like this that are clearly instructive that uh, we are supposed to be active as the body of Christ. Do you see the church in 2020 as as being that powerhouse, or do you see us just kind of laying around waiting for, uh, you know, the next instruction for what to do next? Well, it's an interesting thing that you would ask that, because what I see is the opposite. First, let's look at what the text is describing. What is it that Jesus is saying he is building? What he describes is very unlike what we usually see in anything that we call a church in America. What Jesus describes, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is it? My church that I built. Mm. So if Jesus builds a church, it is so aggressive that what he is portraying and describing is that hell is in a defensive posture. They've run inside the walls of a fortified city, if I can just paint the picture in your mind. The demons are terrified that the church is coming. They've slammed the gate shut. They've barred it closed. They're putting piles and piles of bricks and stones and wagons and everything they can to hold the doors because the church is coming with these massive battering rams, and they're absolutely terrified of us. And Jesus is predicting, we're going to hit that gate so hard, 
We're going to crush Satan's work so desperately that those gates will come crumbling down on top of them, and they have a good reason to be terrified of us. So this is not in any way a description of what men are building. When men build churches, you see just the exact opposite. You see the churches nervously uh, cowering in the corner of the shadows of their building, hoping no one breaks the door down to hurt them or arrest mm. them, right? Yeah. That you see churches trembling with fear of what, what, what is the state saying? What, what's the devil going to do next? And this is the opposite of what Jesus describes as a church he built. So I'm probably oversimplifying it. Someone will tell me that I am, but I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and say this. If you're looking for a church that really Jesus built it, it's his design. He uh, sovereignly said, I want a local church in this town right here, and I'm calling this man to preach here. Mm -hmm. If you want to find a church like that, then one of the first things Jesus describes you should look for is you should look for an aggressive church that's absolutely terrifying Satan and how they conduct themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to find, brother. It's really hard to find churches like that. Or you can find churches that are so enormous and so powerful, and I don't begrudge them of the power, and I don't begrudge them of their size. I just think it's sad that the government and the wicked people of society, including Satan himself, are absolutely unafraid of them. Mm. And if, if Satan is unafraid of you, then that will play out in the natural world where his children are unafraid of you as well. Wow. And, I and I would say that a distinguishing factor of a church Christ built is that wicked government officials uh, whisper in the darkness, what are we going to do about that church? Mm. And if you don't have that going on, you're probably going to need to step it up. Mm. And uh, that's what we're called to be. Why? Well, you see, Jesus was such a pushover and so gentle and so loving <laughs> that the yeah. civil authorities said there's no need to bother that guy. He's completely harmless. <laughs> right. Right. I'm being facetious. So if, yeah. we, if we follow Jesus and we're like Jesus, someone should probably want to hang us on a cross mm. and um, someone should not like us. Mm. Uh, Jesus said we would be hated for following him. I ask this question all the time to my church and to other congregations when I minister. Why don't more people hate you? because they ought to. And if people aren't hating you actively, you're probably not doing your job. Wow. And I, I, but you see, no one wants to be disliked because we bought this lie that we can't get anyone saved unless they like us and think we're the nicest people they've ever met in their lives. Mm -hmm. But that's not what the Bible teaches gets people born again. What gets people born again is finding out that they're in deep trouble with God, that the wrath of God is coming and his justice will prevail and they are crooked in his sight. That's what gets them saved. And frankly, no one wants to hear that. I didn't want to hear it either. Nobody wants to find out that they've made God angry. Nobody wants to find out that they're going to go to hell. So the reaction to the true preaching of the gospel that's given from a heart of compassion, frankly, the, the, the primary reaction of the flesh of all sinners is, woe is me. I wish I'd never heard that. They either fight or they, or, or they bow their knee in repentance and humility. Yeah. But We've bought the lie that we have to be super loving and gentle, that we've got to be some like Mr. Rogers personified. <laughs> and, and so what's happened is we've taken the institution of the church, getting back to your text, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
We've taken the institution that is set here to present eternal immutable laws that confront all cultures that are anti-Christian, that demand anti-Christian cultures to change immediately, else face the coming wrath of God. Mm. We've taken this institution. That's what the institution of the church is for. That's what the assembly is for, to train God's people to confront darkness and to bring in people, you know, that repent and come into the kingdom of light, but, but, but to be willing to confront the illegal activities of earth. We call them sin, but just think of them in legal terms. They're illegal. They're criminal acts in the, in the view of God. And we're to confront those things. And what we've done is we've taken the institution and converted it into a giant evangelism effort. And so the institution stops confronting because then people will be uneasy and, and unhappy with the sermon or they won't like the teaching. We stop confronting and we start petting. And then what happens is that most people have a mentality, well, if I want someone to come to Christ, I invite them to church. And then the preacher has to do a really good job of being very entertaining and very, very loving. And he should be so gentle and so kind and warm that my friends that I invited to attend on Sunday say, you know, I think I want to get saved now. Mm. And, and that's the view that they have. But the reality is it's not the duty of the assembly to get your friends saved. It's the duty of the assembly to stand against darkness. It's your personal private duty and your capacity as an individual Christian to get people saved one-on-one, -on -one, one person at a time, then to disciple them, to teach them that it is a privilege to join the assembly mm. and to prepare them for the hard truths. The Bible says you have to endure sound doctrine. That means sound doctrine is almost militant, right. and you have to be a mature person to be able to endure it. It's an exercise that makes you stronger. It's like boot camp. So you prepare these people, these precious newborn Christians. You bring them to a place of maturity. You disciple them. Then you teach them it's a privilege to attend the church, but I don't know if you're mature enough. I don't know if you're ready yet. And they say, no, no, please. I want to go to church. It is an honor. I want to go. And then you bring them into the church. So what we've done is we've got everything just, my, my brother refers to it as the upside down church. So We've lost the purpose of the institution, which is to stand against evil and to be a, a, a blockade against evil culture. We've stopped doing that. Mm. Individual Christians have stopped witnessing and bringing people into the kingdom. And everything has been punted to this pastor who's now supposed to be the supreme evangelist. <laughs> yeah. and, and the church is not doing its duty anymore. So I, in a nutshell, probably taking too much of your time, I've no. tried to encapsulate what's wrong with the Western church. Does that make sense to you? No, definitely, definitely. So really, we are rejecting the idea that we as Christians have authority that has been given to us. We reject the idea that the church has authority that has been given to us. And yes. really, in rejecting all of these different levels of authority, we also are rejecting the fact that Christ had the authority to give to us to begin with. So it's really no wonder at all that the church is so inactive in this world and why we're afraid to go out and speak to the magistrate or why we're afraid to go out and address some of these um, issues that are considered social or um, in some places political issues or cultural issues because we don't think we really have any authority in these places to speak. And I ask you, Pastor Kerry, you were talking about the institution of the church. Just step that down for a second. How is this rejection of the authority that has been given to us as Christians 
over the past few years affected the family? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, if you think about the, the family government, that God puts headship and leadership upon the man, that the man is the head of the house, and, uh, you know, this family government and the way that it works very beautifully parallels with ecclesiastical government, the way that it ought to work in the local church. And there's a parallel on how civil government is supposed to work as well. Mm. And uh, so when you see the church being dysfunctional, not taking its leadership seriously, not, not exercising authority properly, it's usually symptomatic in every other direction. Well, what do we see in the family government? We see uh, fatherless homes almost everywhere. Um, we see when there is a man, he's passive, passive-aggressive, absent. Uh, he does not take his authority in the home. Hmm. We see very commonly in the West women-led houses, um, female-dominated homes when little boys grow up, and how do they act? Feminine. And, and how does the men act? Well, the men are demasculinized. We hate testosterone in America. We, we demonize the natural proclivities of manhood. Um, it's to the point now, honestly, I know that they've discussed removing the statue of John Wayne at the John Wayne Airport in California. Why? Well, because he was too masculine. And so we're, we're at war with masculinity in the home and in our culture and so where did we get these ideas? Well, it comes from a demasculinized church where men are not leading. You see, you know, in some of these apostate denominations, it's almost unheard of to find a man who's a pastor. It's almost all women pastors. For example, the Methodist church, they're, they're so apostate, they're feminized, they're pro-gay. It's completely disgusting. And it, it, it's, it's a war against authority, and it's the basic Authority structures established in creation itself that Adam was made first and then Eve, just as the scripture says. So all of these things come on, come apart and they unravel. And uh, so, the, but the church is here to set the tone. So if the church won't be faithful in its ecclesiology in demonstrating masculine leadership and the church succumbs to a feminization, uh, a hyper love, hyper agape love theology, uh, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. It's like all you hear in most of these churches that's ever taught the love. God loves you so much. And it's a feminization of the of the message. Then the, the result is that will produce feminized families and feminized boys and masculine girls and everything gets all out of whack. And then you look at your government. Uh, you know, the, the civil government in our type of government as a republic is downstream uh, from American culture, and American culture is downstream from church culture, mm. and the church really sets the tone. So frankly, almost all of the evils we're dealing with, we can't exclusively blame Satan. He certainly exploits things, yeah. and he is definitely our enemy, and he, he is very real, and demons are real. The, the prince of darkness is doing his work, but I'm telling you, uh, we have to take responsibility and realize we, we started a lot of this, the church did it. The church drifted from inerrancy, and the church upended the sufficiency of Scripture. And as soon as you cast aside inerrancy and sufficiency, everything begins to unravel. It might take 100 years to finally do you in, but that's what's happening. Mm. We're, we're being undone right now, and it's really, I think, at the foot of the church that all of this has happened. Well, so we have work to do as the church. We today. have a lot of work to do. Wow. That is amazing. But at least, you know, 
we know where we got to go. We got to return and be faithful to this book. It's not just here to collect the sunshine in the back window of our car. We have some work to do. I really, really appreciate this conversation, Pastor Kerry. I really appreciate you and and your willingness to give up um, some of your time to be with us today. So uh, I just want to give you an opportunity. Would you just let our listeners know how they can find out more about you or about uh, the ministry of Cornerstone World Outreach? Absolutely. You, we've got a brand new website. It's actually been under construction for a year, and it's going to be out soon, and I'm excited about it. It's really neat. But we do have a temporary site up at the same address, and you can go to cornerstoneworld.org, O-R-G, cornerstoneworld.org, and you can enjoy our temporary website. We just have a handful of sermons available there. You could also check out my radio website at beyondthewallsradio.com, and If you're interested in learning about how to take the Ten Commandments and apply them to life as an American and see a positive change in the world around us, you can check out our website at www.stepstopoliticalepiphany.com. So those are three different avenues that you can take, and I highly recommend all of them. Well, that is awesome. Thank you again so much. I'm going to be praying for you and for your family and for your ministry out there at World Outreach. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. 